Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Welcome everybody. Uh, My name is Tom Edwards, as Jason shared before. My wife Jasmine and I are visiting here, visiting family today from City Reach Marion and it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, Before we open up Ephesians 4, would you just join with me in prayer? Father, we thank you that uh, we can come here and worship you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we pray that today, by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us, you would comfort weary hearts, you would strengthen uh, weak souls And would you magnify yourself, Lord Jesus Christ? Would you saturate us with your grace and draw us into a deeper place of communion and reverence for you as we worship you, our great and glorious King? So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about six years ago, I moved to Adelaide. I grew up in Canberra. And I moved over uh, to Adelaide, and shortly after arriving, I started renting a place in Port Adelaide. And at the time, it was this new development called Newport. Um, And I came to Adelaide not having a lot of those negative connotations that many people do about Port Adelaide. So I absolutely loved Port Adelaide. I thought it was incredible. Coming from Canberra, we don't have a beach, so I was just fascinated to, to be able to smell the sea breeze and all the other smells you, you smell in Port Adelaide. <laughs> and uh, shortly after spending some time in this new development, it was um, a, uh, a beautiful apartment building, actually. There was a number of them, and they were brand new apartments, uh, and they were quite lovely inside, but around the apartments, it was, uh, if you've ever been out there, you would know what I'm talking about. It's just completely desolate and deserted. There's abandoned factories. Uh, you get a whole lot of dust coming up to your balcony because uh, there's really just dirt for, for kilometres and kilometres around. And one day I was talking to this gentleman who uh, had been living in Port Adelaide and he knew a lot about this uh, development that was happening. So he said that the government had this plan uh, to revitalise Port Adelaide, and so they had this three-stage plan for Newport. And stage one was to build these beautiful apartments. And shortly after finishing stage one, they realised that they simply didn't have the growth to sustain the next two steps. These apartments were less than 50% full. And so they had to can the next two steps, and all that was left were these beautiful buildings with no growth going on inside, and nothing happening outside. And I was thinking about that as I was studying this passage, and I realised that there is a real danger in 21st century Western culture, particularly in Australia, for the church to become just like that, where we have these beautiful buildings and there's no growth going on inside. There's certainly nothing happening outside. Even many of you who grew up in Adelaide would know that Adelaide used to be called the city of churches, and now many people refer to it as the city of empty churches. As the body of Christ, we are called to grow. In fact, in uh, this passage here, Paul calls us to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This isn't just growth. This is 
an immeasurable, infinite, inexhaustible growth that we are called to. And so in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see how the church is supposed to grow. And so as we look to this first section here in verses 11 to 13, I want to particularly look at, first of all, how Christ has gifted his church in order to keep the body growing in unity and maturity. So if you look in your Bibles there at verse 11, you'll see that uh, Christ has given apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So the first thing we notice is that he has given this to himself. Christ gives from himself to his body. The church is his body. It is to himself. If you kind of think about it like uh, on those Christmas days or your birthday when you have that distant relative who feels like they need to give you a gift but they don't really know you well enough so it's always this weird gift that you're never going to use and you kind of think well I don't you know don't, don't feel like you have to give me a gift but if you do maybe just give me the money you would have spent for that gift so that I can buy something I really need like groceries or something like that. We know what we need. Likewise, Christ knows exactly what his body needs. And so what he has given to his body, to his church, are gifts in the form of people. These are offices and roles given to the church. So the first two we see there, apostles and prophets, these were messengers and those who spoke on behalf of God. Apostles were the sent ones, that the word apostle literally means sent one. And so these were those who, uh, there were certain qualifications for apostles, namely that they were to witness the resurrected Christ. These were the, those uh, apostles who were sent out to hand down the apostolic teaching in the early church before we had the Bible incomplete. Likewise, prophets were those who were, uh, they spoke directly on behalf of God. They were his mouthpiece. Now, there are different views on this within Christianity. My conviction, and I think what we see from uh, passages like Ephesians 2.20, is that the church was built on a foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the, the cornerstone. And now a foundation is only laid once and we build from that. We don't keep laying a foundation upon a foundation upon a foundation. So apostles and prophets were given before sacred scripture was completed. They sort of steered the ship, so to speak, until we had the full foundation. So prophets were those who would say, you know, thus saith the Lord, and they speak directly on behalf of God. We don't really have that now. Hopefully we don't, unless someone is speaking directly from scripture. So these two in offices are distinct in one sense. In another sense, what we can see is that the role of apostles and prophets, an element of that actually continues in evangelists, shepherds and teachers, namely that they are to minister and teach the word of God. The difference, of course, is that for those roles that are given to the church now, is that we are speaking the word of God under the authority of Scripture. So as we unpack this more, we see that there are those within the body, within the church, that Christ gives, he gifts 
to his church those who are particularly gifted. And now I don't mean particularly gifted like they get the proper grace and the proper gifts and we get the dregs. It's not like that at all. From Ephesians 4, 7, we read each Christian is given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. I mean that there is grace given for a particular purpose to these people within the church. So we see as evangelists, these are those people who can clearly proclaim the gospel. And when they do, it is articulate and it is sharp and it is clear. Shepherds are those with a particular measure of grace to care for the flock. And this goes with teachers, those who can articulate biblical truths in a way that promotes learning. But a key element of these particular roles is that they are to impart these gifts to the church. So an evangelist can articulate the gospel well, but he does it in a way that will cause the rest of us in the church to grasp that concept and be able to go forth and proclaim the gospel, given that we have obviously have the Great Commission, we are all to participate in evangelism, but God gives an evangelist to the church to equip us in order to go and do that. Likewise, a teacher can teach us to be able to teach in a way that you may not have a, a frontline role in the church teaching people, but you learn how to teach your neighbour who is interested in faith. And this way we can all serve together. So what we will see is that these gifts are always given for the edification of the church, for building up the church. So these roles within the church, they're appointed by Christ. And so what exactly are they for the first point here is these gifts are to equip God's people and to cause them to grow. We see this in verses 12 to 13. These gifts are given to equip the saints. Now, uh, many people may not know uh, saints. Saints are basically you and I who have been washed by the blood of Christ. Anyone who is in the church. So saints are not just those you know, famous saints that we see on stained glass windows in old churches. Anyone who would profess their faith in Jesus Christ is a saint because they are set apart by the grace of God. And so the first purpose of these roles that we see in the church is to equip the people of the church, to equip the saints. Now there's three functions that we're going to see here that we are equipped for. And the first is the work of ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. This is in verse 12. And see, ministry is service. And ministry or service is something that we all engage in. So if you call yourself a Christian, you have committed to a lifetime of service. And this gives us a barrier against relying on the professionals to do the work of ministry. This is the same principle that Jesus used. When Jesus fed the 4,000 in Matthew 15, if you're not aware of that, he, he fed a whole mass of people with a very small amount of food. And the way that he did that was to give the bread to his disciples. And then he said to his disciples, now you go out and feed the people. Likewise, these roles within the church are there to equip us to go and serve others, to be involved in ministry. 
It's a, a common thing. And I, I felt this uh, when I first came to Christ and was, was part of a, a church where it seemed like there was this distinction between clergy and congregation, between those on the stage and those who sit down in the seats. And sometimes we don't feel like we're actually part of ministry. We don't feel like we're uh, serving or we feel pressured into this. And I want to lay this foundation. Ministry isn't something that we initiate. It isn't something that we work for in response uh, to this pressure. Ministry is something we participate in. We, We join in on ministry because it's God's ministry. This is something we're invited into. When Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 talks about ministry, he says, God, who reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, giving us this ministry of reconciliation. By reconciling us to himself through Jesus Christ, we've been invited into this same ministry of proclaiming the reconciling, redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So we're equipped to join in on what God is already doing, and this is how the body is built up. And the radical thing about Christianity and service is that this is not ultimately dependent upon your competency. It's the total opposite of this. It's counter-cultural. God delights in using the weak, the feeble, the humble to join in on what he's doing because this means God's glory and strength can shine all the more through. And now the second area that we're equipped for which you see in the first half of verse 13, is so that we can come to unity by growing in our knowledge of Christ. See, knowledge is something that we must be equipped for and grow from. The the worst thing we can do is buy into this false dichotomy where it's either doctrine or worship, theology or spirituality. There should be no dichotomy of these in our lives. Our deep understanding and knowledge of the majesty of Christ is what draws us into a deeper spiritual worship. This knowledge that we're called to is a deep, intimate knowledge. When Paul talks about this in Philippians 3, he says, I want to know Christ. I don't just want to know him. I want to know him uh, in his sufferings. I want to participate in his sufferings. I want to know his resurrection. He, he wants to know him so deeply that he wants to suffer in every way because that way he'll know him in a, in a way that he wouldn't have if he had not suffered. Growing in our knowledge of Christ in this intimate way brings unity because the more deeply we know Christ, well, the less we depend upon other sources for knowledge and the more we are shaped by him as we grow in our knowledge. The third area that we're equipped for is in the second half of verse 13, to strive for maturity into the fullness of Christ. See, in this call for growth, there has to be a desire to grow. Not just to sit back and be entertained, but to grow and pursue maturity. 
And it's important to understand how this actually works. In Colossians 1.29, Paul says, I strenuously contend with all of the power that Christ works within me. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, I worked harder than all of them, than all of the apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. It's important to understand this because as we strive for maturity, this is something that we should be doing, but as we step out, we do it, not trusting in ourselves, but trusting that the grace of God will carry us towards maturity and towards Christ. So having this uh, foundation, these three functions that we are equipped for, I want to look at three uh, areas that prevent our growth or that stop us from being built up. So the first warning sign that we should note, and uh, I, I want us to think about this and think if this would characterize me, and if so, then please understand that this should be a red flag and a warning sign, is that there is no sense of participation in ministry. This takes shape in a number of ways, one of which is that you might be a Lone Ranger Christian, where you're isolated from everyone else. And so sure, you go to church on a Sunday, maybe even serve on a team, but there is no accountability in your life because you wouldn't dare let anyone deep down into what goes on inside of you. And so you stay emotionally isolated from those in the church. And this is a result of our individualistic, transactional-like culture where we're kind of content with getting a dose of community for a couple of hours on a Sunday, maybe through the week, but the rest of the time we're not engaged in any form of service or community. And we have this transactional culture where we give something and we expect to be rewarded or compensated for that. And the reality is that we simply will not be rewarded or compensated to the level that we think in ourselves. And so we end up frustrated and we draw back and stay isolated. Now, on the flip side of this is the more consumeristic culture also in the traditional churches where it's more like the parish priest Christian, where you have the priest, the head of the church, who's in his parish and you're a member in the church and so you expect the priest to come around and visit the houses as the parish priest did. And so church for you is more of what, how can I be served? What can I get from this? And it's a consumeristic element where church is kind of like a salad bar and so you take what you want from the salad bar and you leave the rest and it's exactly the same as going to a shopping center. These should be very dangerous warning signs which prevent our growth. And the second warning sign is where things are weighing you down. This is where we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're not actually holding on to sin or baggage in our lives. So with unforgiveness, this might take shape in you saying things like, yeah, I've forgiven that person. I've forgiven them that they're a horrible and terrible person. It doesn't really sound like you've forgiven them. 
Or you might replay in your mind all of the bad things that they have done to you to affirm you staying in that place. So you think you've forgiven them, but you keep thinking about everything wrong they've done that justifies you not actually going to reconcile that relationship. And that's not the same as forgiveness. Or in lustful sin, we deceive ourselves into thinking that sin in our lives isn't really sin or it isn't really that bad. And so we might intentionally scroll through certain pages on social media because we know that there is a hint of coming across some sort of promiscuous or sexual photograph. Or late at night, we intentionally flick through certain channels on the odd chance that we'll flick onto something late at night which has the same sort of sexual references that feed into our sin. These should be dangerous warning signs that prevent our growth. The last one is immaturity. Now, this is actually what Paul picks up on in verse 14, where he gives the mark of an immature body part. He describes this person like a helpless child tossed to and fro in the middle of a deep, stormy sea. Immature body parts are led astray by cunningness, craftiness, and deceit. And see, these are all subtle things that often lead people astray because they're not all that tangible. So it's not like there's this big red devil with a pitchfork luring you in so you can clearly see, well, I don't want to hang out with that guy. It's much more subtle and deceptive than that. This craftiness of sin in the world takes shape in ways that are very difficult to identify. It's often in things that are neither good or bad in and of themselves, but they have this crafty way of grabbing sin in our lives and feeding into unhealthy desires. Like the deceptiveness of social media, which feeds into our problem with instant gratification, lust and comparison. So we live in this world that is filtered, where we only ever get the A game of people because they filter everything that goes on in their life. And so they share the good stuff and we inevitably compare ourselves to that and we're obviously going to pale in comparison to that filtered world because we can't filter what goes on inside of us. This has influenced the church more than we realise. Some of you may have heard the story uh, about a week or two ago of uh, the American missionary, John Chow, that was killed. This was an American missionary that was trying to reach a remote island uh, about a 1,000 kilometres off the coast of India. And he was killed by a tribe. And this was one of the last primitive tribes in the world. And uh, many in the online world of Christianity were actually uh, condemning him as foolish for what he did. And now, whether or not he did the amount of research required uh, for a missionary to reach people is irrelevant for this, but the way in which many Christians reacted demonstrated how materialistic we've become. We care so much about what we have in the here and now instead of setting our hope in something that is eternal and imperishable. I mean, this is what Paul was saying when he said 
for me to live is Christ, to die is to gain. And then he, he said, I'd rather just die and be with Christ because that's far better. Like we think that sounds morbid in our 21st century, very comfortable Western lifestyle. And see, this is not the pattern of history. This is only the product of the last 50 to 100 years. In fact, in church history, martyrdom, which are those who would die for the sake of the gospel, was what made Christianity explode. Because people started to see these Christians who their faith was real. They were willing to die for Jesus Christ. They had this selfless lifestyle where they would uh, pick up babies off the street because in first century Palestine, it was totally normal to throw a baby on the street if you didn't want it. And Christians were the ones who would come and pick them up and take them into their house. Whereas we don't look at this anymore, so we look at John Chow, this martyred missionary, and call him foolish for having a heart to reach people who don't know Jesus Christ. For him, he's in a place where there is no more pain, no more suffering, where God wipes away every single tear from our eyes. Like, is that a reality? Is that a reality for you? Because the cunningness and deceptiveness of this current culture we live in breeds into this idea that Christianity is nothing more than attending church on a Sunday, leading a small group and talking about your faith to one person each year so you tick it off the spiritual to-do list. The deceptiveness and cunningness of the patterns of this world are things that we must be wary of. And so we've seen these three warning signs that prevent growth. And ultimately, all of these signs are just uh, elements of our brokenness. But I want to look now at how the redemptive work of Christ actually solves this. See, in order for our brokenness to be fixed and for us to be built up, we have to first recognise our complete inability to build ourselves. In 2017, there was an Australian architect who won the World Architecture of the Year Award. This man was a Christian and he built this beautiful house in this desolated, rejected and lost land where people had given up on the land. And he built this beautiful house and he said he wanted to build this house to testify to the redeeming work of Christ, that Christ redeems the rejected. He redeems the lost. And this man won the World Architecture of the Year Award for this house. And what happened is that after this house was built, the land began to grow and to flourish. And see, this is why we can be built up. Because Christ came to redeem the broken. He didn't request that we prove ourselves worthy. He didn't request a building inspection. He said, I know you're broken. I know you're rejected. I know you're dilapidated. But I love you and I'm going to redeem you completely. Christ comes to us in our brokenness. 
and rebuilds us and restores us with a firm foundation which can never be shaken. And just like the land that that architect built on that began flourishing after, so we are actually set free from the power of sin that created this brokenness. When Christ restores us, we have that foundation and then we can be built up. So now that we have this foundation, we now, of course, have something to build ourselves from. And see, the way that we grow from this foundation into maturity, into Christ, is, again, completely countercultural and counterintuitive. We grow as Christians by confessing our weaknesses. We grow by having this utter helplessness and desperation upon the grace of God. We grow by confessing, I've got nothing left. Please build me, Lord. Holy Spirit, please strengthen me. This is how we grow. And so in verses 15 to 16, we're going to see what a mature body looks like as it's growing into Christ. And here we get three key marks of growth in the body. And what I want to do is give three questions in response to this for us as points of application. So the first step of growth is that we speak the truth in love in the first half of verse 15 there. Now, this has quite honestly become one of the most generalized and vague statements floating around within Christianity and the world, this idea of speaking the truth in love. The problem is that many have used this as an excuse, speaking the truth in love, with a sledgehammer type approach. And so because people have abused this and because we live in an extremely sensitive culture, we dodge and duck around the truth. See, we can say vaguely truthful things as long as we mask it in layers and layers of apologies, of compliments and of fluffiness so that we don't get labelled one of these fundamentalist Christians. I mean, you can pretty much say anything you want as long as you kind of start it like, well, I'm not too sure on this and, you know, I'm broken as well and, you know, we're all broken together. And you kind of mask this thing because inevitably we're ashamed of the truth. It um, actually reminds me of this story. Some of you may know uh, Penn and Teller, the magicians. Penn is uh, the big tall uh, one, and he's quite a famous atheist. And in this interview, uh, he explained that he has no respect for Christians who do not proselytize. So he has no respect for Christians who do not preach the gospel. And he's quite has quite a, a solid grasp of world religions. And the reason he said this is because he said, if this person is a Christian and they believe that there is a day where all of us will stand before God and be judged and enter into heaven or hell, I don't respect anyone that would not warn me of that. Whether or not he believes in it is irrelevant, but that person believes in it and he's not going to warn me of it. And so he says it's like if someone was standing in the middle of the street on their phone and there was a bus coming 
and you see the bus coming and this is your friend and so you start yelling out at them. There's a bus coming, get out of the way. And they're just engrossed in their phone and they say, leave me alone. Are you going to say, okay, I don't want to bother Timothy, just he'll figure it out. It's going to get to a point if you love that person where you're going to push them out of the way. So how do we speak the truth in love? We have to look to the example of Jesus Christ who is truth and who is love. And how did he show his love? In sacrificially laying down his life to bring about redemption. So if we are to speak the truth in love, we speak the truth of Jesus Christ and we do it by laying down our lives for the good of others. And so this may mean for you sacrificing your image. So you might be known as that harsh Christian or that bigot who believes in hell because you stood firm upon the truth of Jesus Christ. But when we do this in a loving way, it actually stands out more. So you might have a, a colleague and they're like, I can't believe Michelle believes in such oppressive and disgusting things that the Bible teaches. And she won't budge on them, but she keeps inviting me out for lunch. And she keeps asking me how my day's gone. And she keeps asking me if she can pray for me. This is weird. I mean, this is what makes the truth stand out more when we have a loving and caring and compassionate act about us. And it messes with people's minds because the natural connotation is a fundamentalist, harsh, Bible-believing Christian is going to be someone who doesn't care to invite me over for lunch, someone who doesn't care to ask me how my day was. See, living out the biblical truths of loving everyone as yourself makes the verbal truths of the teachings within Christianity stand out even more. So my question is for us to ask ourselves, am I speaking the truth in love to those in and outside the church? The second part here is that we stay connected to the body. In verse 16, we, we see this. We recognise our dependence upon other body parts and play our part. See, God has ordained it that every member of the body is connected and dependent upon one another. So in verse 16, we read that when each part is joined together and working properly, the body grows and builds itself up in love. And so you may be working in a job or school where you're surrounded by non-Christians in a very secular environment and maybe you come to church and you have this feeling of separation because you see maybe those who are doing the ministry and uh, you know, in your day through the week, you don't get the chance to have those conversations with other Christians. But if you are connected to the Christ and in the body, then you can trust that in that job, you are exactly where God wants you to be. And you are as important in the body as anyone else. Paul actually talks about this and says that those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. They are so important. 
And so the question for you isn't so much, well, where do I need to go to get more of a sense of mission or ministry or growth? But the question is, where has God placed me right now in order to join in on his ministry? Or who doesn't know Jesus in my life that God might use me for to play my part in the body? Lastly, the third point in the second half of verse 15 is that we must stay connected to the head. See, all of this can seem like a lot, this talk about growth. And the fact is that it is. There is a great cost to following Jesus. But unless all of this is done while you are clinging to Christ with a sense of utter helplessness if you were to ever be disconnected, if not done with this type of yearning and deep connection to Christ, then all of this is absolutely worthless. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you're the branches. Just stay connected to the vine. Don't try and bear fruit on your own. Just stay connected to me. The question is, am I connected? If someone was to watch me 24 hours a day, would they be able to tell that I have a connection to Christ which I simply cannot part from? Just like that architect who went to the rejected, worthless and lost land to build this beautiful house and redeem the land, and have it flourishing, we have to remind ourselves daily that we were rejected, we were worthless, we were lost. But Jesus came and redeemed us in our brokenness. He is the foundation. He is the master builder. He is the chief cornerstone. And we must look to him in all of his glory and majesty like Mary, who just sat at the feet of Jesus because she found her treasure. This is how we grow together in Christ. Let me pray. Father, we we are humbled. Just reading through this, I'm uh, reminded of my uh, brokenness and of my helplessness apart from you and here uh, with my brothers and sisters in Christ I pray that we would have this yearning deep within us particularly for, for, for those who may not have a sense of participation in your ministry who may be stagnant and not growing I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would Oh, just draw us into a a deeper place of worship of you, that you would remind us that you redeem the broken, that you don't ask us to fix ourselves. You just say, stop, let me fix you. Let me build you. So I pray that we would would know that and it would not be a, a head knowledge. It would be this deep knowledge that I love 
would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight of Jesus Christ, that we would be propelled into this place of reverent worship for you. So Father, we commit ourselves to you and, and pray that you would keep us and you would continue to stir us on to grow as we all together as parts of the body dependent upon one another, recognize our utter dependence upon you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.